Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest is Joshua Abels, author of The Politics of the Eurogroup, Governing Crisis and Conflict in the European Union, published in June by Routledge. Before the 2007-9 global financial crisis hit Europe, only people in the Brussels bubble knew about the Eurogroup. By then, finance ministers from countries using the euro had been meeting every month for 10 years. But as Joshua Abels says in his new study, the group had been almost invisible to the public. Over the next decade, and especially during the most acute phase of the Greek debt crisis in 2015, that all changed. Devised in the 90s as an informal body without decision-making powers, the Eurogroup quickly assumed political authority for negotiating and approving bailout loans and ensuring the conditions of these were met. Memoirs have been written about these fraught years, including dueling books by former Eurogroup president Jeroen Dijsselbloem, and short-lived Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis. But Yasha Rabels has written the first book-length theoretical and institutional assessment of the Eurogroup itself. Dr. Rabels is a research associate and lecturer in political economy at the University of Tübingen. Educated at Mannheim and Oslo, he completed his PhD at Tübingen with a dissertation on the role of the Eurogroup. His most recent research is on infrastructure policy and geoeconomics. Yasha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tim. Well, I, I can't think of a better place to start than to ask why the Eurogroup. I mean, I've been covering this since before it was created, so it interests me. Um, how, how did you come to it? You know, I was actually still a student when the Euro crisis hit, but I have to say that it politicized me um, with regard to European politics, and it fundamentally shaped my view on the European Union. So we have to be aware that for millennials uh, like myself, um, our European memoir, memories are not uh, Kohl and Mitterrand holding hands in Verdun or something. It's, it's actually reading in the newspapers about the profligacy of the Greeks and the Italians and the Portuguese. And it is burning EU flags on Syntagma Square in Athens. So this feeling of European integration going awry was a personal motivation for me to work on the Euro crisis. So this was kind of the personal side. But the academic side was that left and right scholars of European integration, of political economy, they were starting projects on the Euro crisis and its institutional centers. So the ECB received a lot of attention after Draghi announced to do whatever it takes to save the Euro, the creation of the ESM, the powers of the European Council, all of those things, they inspired a lot of research. And I was quite frankly, relatively surprised by the fact that the Eurogroup so the forum of Euro finance ministers that was mentioned over and over in virtually all news outlets was not addressed that much academically. There is an insightful book by Uwe Pütter from 2006, um, but it was dated. So Pütter's idea is basically that the group served as, as kind of a fireside chat um, for ministers to exchange arguments and to find uh, something of a Pareto optimal solution in the nutshell of a nutshell, so to say. However, after the Euro crisis broke out, it was clear that the Eurogroup had transcended far beyond this with all the powers that it got and with 
things getting so controversial. So I decided that this was would make an exciting project. And to be fully honest, um, I was constantly afraid that someone else was writing a book on the Eurogroup as well and would beat me to, to the punch, basically. So fortunately, that was not the case. And now the book is out and I'm happy about that. And looking back at the efforts that I had to put into getting an insight into that rather secretive circle, I can understand why others said pass because it was uh, time consuming. Yeah, and uh, uh, there really has been nothing since 2006 except for the memoirs. That That is extraordinary. Um, really nothing apart from yours. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there have been some, some reports, a very nice report by um, Benjamin Braun um, and... Um, Yes, about the Eurogroup for Transparency International, that was really insightful, but actually no no book or um, articles on that. Yeah. Well, as you said, I mean, it, it is a, um, I mean, secretive is one way of putting, but it, 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 it treasures its confidentiality. Um, and what I most liked about the book was that you talked to people who know the Eurogroup from the inside, and that's unusual for academic writing. What made you choose that route, and how did you go about getting the interviews, and how long did it take to get them? <laughs> I mean, if you if you look at European integration research, especially on institutions, expert interviews are not that unusual of a data source. So what was unusual in my case, however, was how I had to select interviewees, because there is this, this saying, this argument that the top people you cannot really interview them because they will only give you relatively diplomatic answers and on political processes and because they do not know kind of the details, the nitty gritty of what happened. And this is why you have to find the people on the ground, so to say, the ones that were actually there in negotiations, the Sherpas, the bureaucrats, and interview them to really get the data you need. Well, in the case of the Eurogroup, however, the people that are actually there are the top people. So it is the ministers, it is their deputies and the heads of the institutions. So the commission, ECB, ESM, IMF, and some bureaucrats from EU secretariats. And that's it. Um, in the Eurogroup working group, there are, again, the deputies and their deputies, and that's it. So you need to get to those people. This was kind of the challenge. And I was surprised that I was able to get a lot of them, actually, without having a big name attached to me. And I was also surprised how willingly some of them shared rather delicate info with me. I mean, a lot of it was retrospective, so they had not too much to lose. Um, but still, of course, there were some more willing to share than others. So, for example, German officials were often very formal about what they were saying, not so much their southern European counterparts. Um, I kept the interview semi-open to allow the interviewees to spill the beans on issues I hadn't even thought about for a particular interview. And sometimes that worked. And I got some great quotes and data out of it. And of course, kind of the challenge is you have to triangulate interview data. You cannot take most of the stuff they say in interviews at face value. That's just in the nature of it. Um, but if you cross-check it with other sources, so other interviews, but also news reports, memoirs, official documents, then you get an idea about their authenticity and their biases. And then in 2020, um, so when I was basically done, Yanis Varoufakis published his audio recordings of the Eurogroup and the Eurogroup Working Group meetings that he attended during his stint as finance minister, the so-called Euroleaks. And this changed everything because for the first time, at least for a certain period, I had undisputed real audio material, material from the inside of a group where there are no cameras allowed and no minutes are taken. And is there 
Were you able to go back to any of the people or were they just one-off interviews? I mean, it, did, did you do an interview with somebody, you then got more information, and were you able then to go back to anybody? Um, as there are high-ranking people, um, I had to arrange the meetings far in advance uh, at, to some degree. So some of them, them said, if there are any questions, kind of you get you have later, you can, you can basically give us a phone call. Um, I was in basically mail contact with some of them and got some additional answers, but uh, the most of them were, were a one-off thing. Um, they said I should um, send them a book when I'm done, but um, with, with some, I'm not sure if they would like to, to read what I wrote. So, Yeah, yeah. Is there anyone you wanted to get and failed to? Yes, this is a really interesting question. I, um, of course, uh, kind of... Um, I, I did not disclose my sources in the book, so some of them would said it would be okay, actually, and others wanted to stay anonymous, so I decided to anonymize the whole thing. Um, but I think kind of it's evident I got top officials from the institutions involved, so the ESM, the IMF, the ECB, the Commission, and then parliamentarians and senior officials from various parties and ministries and nationalities. So sometimes I even got state secretaries, so the second highest people, and for one country I even got, got to a finance minister, and once I interviewed a person that would become finance minister of their country only some month later. So I was quite happy with that. And I'm highly grateful, actually, to all who took the time and talked to me, even though, as I said, I, of course, sympathize with some more than with others, as is often the case. But I tried to keep this out of the book. What I didn't expect was how difficult it would be to get a French perspective, actually. Maybe I did something wrong or the timing was bad, but I really wanted to get someone from their ministry who is involved in European affairs from the finance ministry. So I sent various mails to people there asking them for an interview and not with the finance minister, uh, Bruno Le Maire, um, that was unrealistic, but maybe with one of his staff or his deputy, Odile Renaud Basso, just anyone, you know. And several months later, I got a written letter in my office inbox signed by Le Maire's uh, chief of staff telling me in French, of course, that Le Maire is too busy. And I still have the letter hanging behind me in my office, actually, but I never tried again. So I got some some other influential French politicians. Um, that was really interesting, but I would have loved to talk with their finance ministry. Um, but that didn't happen. So even though I got most of the people I wanted, there were certain issues that some would not discuss. This was interesting. This particularly concerned one of my questions, which I, of course, strategically put towards the end of some interviews. Um, how the Eurogroup got Greece's left-wing Syriza government um, to surrender on the austerity program in 2015. I mean, I understand the political calculus behind Syriza's decision to, to cave in, but I would have liked to get the perspective of the EU institutions in particular. And I have this great quote by an EWG official in my book that said, um, I quote, the fear of bankruptcy sharpens the mind. And this is where our interview came to an end. And similarly, an ECB official told me that it was, quote, unquote, very easy to twist their arms of the program countries, but they would not specify further what they meant by this. Um, but I got a pretty good idea about that still. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we will certainly come to Greece. Uh, just just one more question on, on, on process. You also talked to some journalists. How, how did you pick them? Were they people that you knew to have covered the... Um, to have covered the crisis or was it particular countries? It was actually only um, only one uh, journalist I talked to, and this is because he was uh, recommended to me by um, 
or it was mentioned in a talk with a with a senior official, um, and I looked into it and saw how deeply um, the journalist was involved or reporting on some of the issues that I was addressing. And I thought this would be a great source. And actually, I came around to um, to quote them quite uh, quite frequently in the book because they had some, I I would say interesting take. I did not share all of them, but some interesting takes on the issues and what what was going down. So this was kind of an as an kind of additional outside critical lens um, to the other voices that I got. Well, th that explains why I thought it was more than one. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so uh, I mean, coming come to the substance of the book, uh, at the core of your argument, it seems to me, is the informality of the Eurogroup, the factor that gives it its strength. And you, you quote Dosel Bloom referring to... Um, referring to the institution or the agency as a bamboo rather than an oak. So it was able to bend with, with, uh, with the environment as it changed. But you also explain that it, quote, deepens extant inequalities and power asymmetries, uh, end quote. So can you explain this concept? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I found the quote by Dyson Blum actually quite, quite in, telling with a bamboo rather than an oak, even though he, he was talking about the EU as a whole. I found it very fitting for the Eurogroup. But basically what the... What the book does is it takes kind of a broader political economic look at the economic monetary union and the politics of the euro crisis. So it outlines the uneven development and dependencies of the euro economies and kind of the export oriented, highly industrialized northern economies were and still are the main beneficiaries of economic and monetary integration for several reasons that are outlined in the book. So politically, this economic strength and the dependency of the periphery countries allowed the northern economies, so Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, but mostly the former Germany, to dominate euro crisis politics. I mean, this has been pretty obvious to, to almost every observer, um, if you're not in denial. Where my institutional argument comes in then, and this is why I amend my political economic perspective, so to say, with what I call a power-based institutionalist perspective is that I found that the institutional setup of the Eurogroup contributed even more to these dominant structures. So put simply, if the Eurogroup would not have been the Eurogroup as it is, the management of the Euro crisis would have looked fundamentally different. I am certain of that. However, the informal character of the group allowed for the exploitation of institutional power um, by certain finance ministries, mostly those from Germany and the Netherlands. So informality means that the Eurogroup is virtually non-codified. There are two, two paragraphs in the TFEU on the Eurogroup, and that's it. And this implies that the Eurogroup can take any form and adopt almost any procedure it desires. It is more confidential than other EU bodies because it's not an official EU body. It is informal after all, and thus it can decide on its own transparency rules. It is not even affected by the EU common rules that documents must be properly managed and archived. So you only get the info that is communicated by the president and the institutions, which is fragmental, or what some participants are leaking. Um, also, there is a, a lack, I would say, of democratic control. Um, I mean, senior officials of the Eurogroup themselves have, in parts, admitted that. There is, of course, indirect control of finance ministers through their national parliaments, but this is not very pronounced in some countries. Um, a national parliamentarian has told me uh, I quote, if there is a gap in what, what the finance minister reports to us, you cannot know that it exists in the first place. And this guy was a member of, of a governing party, you know, so this tells you a lot. So this informality has substantially influenced the forms 
of power that were available to the northern ministries, especially the Dutch president of the Eurogroup, Jérôme Dijsselbloem. And Dijsselbloem was largely, largely aligned with German interests. Due to the Eurogroup's uh, institutional specificities, he was able to decide on all proposals discussed in the sessions. If the Greek finance minister brought a draft proposal to the meeting, Dijsselbloem, if he didn't like it, could just say no. And the other ministers would not even get a glimpse of that document. That is that is a fact. Also, he was able to monopolize crisis communication. So due to the confidentiality, he was the one to speak to the outside and to calm the markets, of course, but also to apply pressure on the program countries. And for powerful ministers like Germany's Wolfgang Schäuble, on the other hand, the confidentiality of Eurogroup meetings would mean that they could single-handedly veto any proposal they disliked. And also that they could utter threats that they would not make in more institute more uh, institutionalized fora. And this is why I came to realize, even as someone rooted like in politi political economy, how much institutional design matters. I mean, at the height of the conflict with the Greek Syriza government, they even excluded the Greek finance minister uh, from the meetings. And there was nothing he could do about it, legally speaking. This was reassured to him by. Uh, by the secretariats that were present. So that would never happen in any other EU body that you would kick out a member state because they disagree. And this made um, this kind of Eurogroup institutional setup so so interesting and powerful. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, well, we'll certainly come back to, to those points as well. But I wanted to uh, discuss another fundamental issue to the book, which is you argue throughout that the Eurogroup has emerged as the central body locking in, quote, an order liberal set of ideas that was dominant at the time of its creation. So again, can you talk us through that argument? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I know all the liberalists will hate me for, for this, but uh, what do I care, right? So um, <laughs> let me summarize what I think makes order liberalism the dominant ideology in the EMU's creation. So order liberalism is basically the ideologic product of the so-called Freiberger Schule around Walter Eucken, among others, and it has been highly influential in the politics of Germany, in particular the German uh, Christian Democratic governments from Ludwig Erhard to Helmut Kohl, so across decades. Its underlying idea is that is one of the free market and a strong, strong distrust vis-a-vis -vis the state. So in the order liberal framework, the state should not intervene in economic processes directly, punctually, you know, because this would be authoritarian and whatnot, but it should rather provide kind of the right framework to let the free market unfold. So the state should provide cartel offices to break monopolies, should design labor markets so they would work efficiently, but all in the sense of providing order, not in the sense of steering economic processes. And as another main feature, order liberalism seeks to keep price levels steady and deems monetary policy the main instrument with which to achieve this. Again, if the state keep its greedy hands out of it. So this monetarism is basically the ideological foundation on which the German Bundesbank and later the ECB have been running. The idea that you need an independent central bank that could just by influencing money supply keep inflation at bay. And this is a kind of a very, it's an impossible task um, with which the ECB is struggling just as we speak. Um, at the same time, German order liberalism has also contributed to the creation of the Eurogroup as we know it. And the very first chapter in my book is about the history of the Eurogroup and how it came about. I read a great article some days ago um, by Josef Hien in Socioeconomic Review, 
And the article, it's called The Rise and Fall of All the Liberalism. And there he basically argues that all the liberalism has not survived in the main features of the German welfare state. It has not survived in the economics departments at German universities, but it has survived in the bureaucracies of German ministries, where for decades, people close to this ideology have appointed other like-minded people. And this had led to kind of a groupthink in these in these ministries that is also in parts of the not attached to, to party um, political considerations. So three people he mentions in, the, in this article are former Chancellor Helmut Kohl, his finance minister Theo Weigel, and the German economist Otto Schlecht, all of whom had a considerable influence on the creation of the EMU, and all of whom were proponents of order liberalism. And the French government under, under François, uh, François Mitterrand, they wanted to create a European monetary union, but they always argued for um, a so-called gouvernement économique, so a European body that could steer and coordinate European economic policy. And from what I told you about order liberalism, it is clear that Kohl and Weigel, they were strongly opposed to this. So Jean Pisani-Ferry therefore calls the economic and monetary union uh, one bad for two dreams. So Europe got a monetarist central bank, it got all the liberal fiscal rules, but no economic government. And instead, as a concession to France, the Eurogroup was created as an informal body. And of course, I do not know if Kohl and Weigel today would approve the Eurogroup in its current form, but this is how it came about. Yeah. So, okay, so we, we've established the, the sort of the, the, the roots, the fundamentals of, of the book. There's a lot more to the book, but those are the underlying thoughts. And you write uh, later in the book that the Eurogroup and its rule enforcement, quote, effectively limits the political scope of Euro governments by removing a broad range of policy options. And from what you've described there about the fundamental thinking of order liberalism, that, that's exactly the point, right? That's, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I come from a country where until the late 1990s, you could predict what the central bank would do with monetary policy according to whether there was a by-election coming up where you know so so where politics and a what what a liberal i guess would consider to be a a, a technical issue become very muddied so are there do you have any sympathy with the idea of constrained popular will in any economic sphere I, I love this question, and you're right to ask it. I mean, it, it refers to um, also to kind of question about constitution. So the idea to constrain popular will is an inherent part of national constitutions, and it's, it is about guaranteeing the rights of, of the people. Um, by the way, in the Euro crisis, several European countries, in fact, amended their national constitutions, their very constitutions, to implement a provision that the national budget would have to be in balance or in surplus. So we have written momentary economic policy preferences directly into constitutional law, which shows you the absolute kind of emergency situation the crisis constituted and the absurdity of policy responses to it. But let's put that aside for a second. So what I make reference to in the quote you gave is what Stephen Gill calls the new constitutionalism. So broadly speaking, the idea is that international institutions, treaties, organizations, they form an almost constitutional framework on the transnational level that limits the scope of action for all participating societies without them being able to influence this, however. So it will always be a political question um, that you just raised, whether the enshrinement of certain values and rules 
on on this level is necessary for the well-being of the people or whether it is deeply undemocratic and if kind of people should be able to decide on that i mean in security and disarmament issues for example the case is the, the case is relatively clear cut so i think most would agree that you need treaties you need an institutional framework that forces countries to cooperate and keeps them from invading each other or to engage in arms races that is true in economic policy however i think we should be more careful because here for me it seems and Gil makes quite a similar argument it is also kind of this building of institutions is also to avoid worst case scenarios but not for the societies in general but some very specific interest groups and i think one of the main points i make in the book is that the institutional setup of the economic and monetary union um, as it is written down constraining what governments are able to do has not hindered but exacerbated the euro crisis so the ECB being unable to function as a land of last resort, meaning that it's not allowed to finance its members, even if it means they might default, or the pro-cyclicality of European budget rules. And then the euro crisis and its managers, the Eurogroup, came in, and instead of correcting these problems, they intensified this very framework. So they were so convinced, so invested in the idea of you know, fiscal restriction through privatization, through cutbacks on the welfare state, that they deemed it the only response to any economic crisis the EU should ever allow its member states. And this I find deeply problematic because the citizens of, citizens of these countries, I mean, apart from the question if that is wise or not, but the citizens of these countries could and still can vote any party in power, for example, because they think we should massively invest in the ecological transition now or because they prefer a strong welfare state, but the government will be unable to deliver on that as long as the EU fiscal rules stand. And support for these rules, because they are so momentary, is eroding on an EU level, by the way. So during the pandemic, the Commission and the member states, they had to find all kinds of workarounds to even get a moderate recovery fund set up and to allow its members to, to stabilize their job markets and industrial bases. And what that means is that we got kind of the dominant preferences of a particular point in time and of a particular group of, of countries and interests enshrined basically forever in our um, European framework. Yeah, I, I mean, the other issue that, of course, comes to mind where you're discussing uh, democracy is this is democracy in a monetary union, which means that there are different demoses, right, and different interests. So, for example, you quote... Um, you quote Mark Blythe as saying that the easiest solution, quote, easiest solution to the Greek crisis would have been for the European Central Bank to monetize Greek public debt. Now, that I imagine that would have been quite popular in Greece for a very short period, but would have been fantastically unpopular <laughs> and, and, and against the treaty elsewhere. Um, it, it, is the logic of your argument that the monetary union can't work? I mean, with this... With this particular argument, I'm not saying that the monetary union can work. I think that that the way in which it's set up, I mean, um, uh, with the basically the, the main features that I just outlined is problematic. What I was driving at with the with this uh, argument that is raised by Mark Blythe, where where it is about this easiest solution to to basically for the European Central Bank to to bury Greek debt. Um, it's not because I think that this would be a particularly viable strategy. I just wanted to make the argument that kind of the Greece, Greece's economy compared to the European powerhouses was tiny, and so was its absolute debt. 
So the EU could have dealt with it differently. It would have had the possibility to deal with it differently. But Germany, first and foremost, has been dragging its feet on the issue. And this was, I show this in the book, it's mainly for domestic reasons, because Merkel's, uh, Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats, they had an important state election coming up that they didn't want to risk. They, they went to lose it anyways. But but this was basically the, the idea of why to drag their feet on, on the Greek issue. And this and any other half-hearted measure on the issue has made the Greek crisis far more expensive. So what else should have been done is hard to say. I mean, in the in the logic of the European Union, national debt is national debt. But singling out Greece as kind of the worst sinner of the euro crisis um, does not pay justice to the fact that similar and less pronounced, even if less pronounced, crisis dynamics unfolded in other countries of the European periphery as well. And this was the consequence of asymmetric economic relationships with the eurozone and a misfit of institutional setup as i said i'm um i think one point that should become clear in this uh, in this book is that i i think uh i do not draw into question european integration in general i just raise or point towards the blindness of not seeing this misfit between what kind of is the divergence and the uneven development within the economic and monetary union and the institutions that you would have to set up to get a hold of it. Um, and um, instead, some, some of them were kind of counterproductive in that regard. So the Eurogroup and the other institutions should have taken a more systemic view on the problem and find ways with which to restore the periphery's economic basis, its industrial basis, while the ECB would have guaranteed that these countries would not default as they did later when Draghi said um, whatever it takes. But this would have been kind of another approach to the whole problem. Yeah, and actually you do make a good point. Um, I forget where in the book, but you 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 highlight the asymmetry between the um, strictness uh, with which the European Union and the Eurogroup in particular focused on adjustment in the South and how pretty much the macroeconomic imbalance procedures were pretty much ignored, particularly in Germany. You know, the, the, for several years, and this came from not just inside the European Union, but also from the Americans, that the Germans needed to spend more on infrastructure and they ought to do more to shore up their banking system and so on, whereas the attention was all directed towards the South. Yes, absolutely. This also kind of, I got the feeling that this falls on their feet at the moment when it's about you know, um, geoeconomic competition and all that. Yeah. But um, linked to that, you, again, you, it seemed to me that you, you, you were arguing that the Eurogroup shouldn't be involved in advocating structural reforms in countries that, that come to the ESM for loans, that that was somehow outside the group's mandate. But at the same time, you also say that Greece was, uh, quote, unable to consolidate its finances due to a porous tax base a result of significant tax exemptions for shipping and tourism and the widespread occurrence of tax evasion and tax fraud. So in that case, and in many cases we're seeing in Italy now, uh, the fiscal and the structural overlap. So there's always going to be, it would be very strange if the Eurogroup only looked at pure, pure fiscal policy. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, the argument is not to say that the Eurogroup shouldn't point towards structural weaknesses of their countries and say, look, you need to do something about it. I think the, the point uh, in the book is twofold. So first, in, in parallel to national efforts, the EU, EMU requires significant reform itself. I think this is what's kind of the argument that I, that I just made. Um, 
because even the most consequential and strict structural reform agenda will not bring the crisis countries back on track if the EU, EMU does not tackle its problems of uneven development. Um, so I stress this repeatedly in, in the book that this has been proven by the fact that most crisis countries that went to, through a lot of structural reforms and a lot of um, economic adjustment, including Spain, um, just got back to their pre-financial crisis output levels shortly before the pandemic. So there is basically more than a decade lost with regard to economic output. So there was no catching up effect of, the, of these structural reforms. And Greece is a far cry from that. It has permanently lost about 25% of its economic output. And at the same time, it was precisely the euro crisis countries that were suffering most under the initial shock of the pandemic, which shows that all the structural reforms that have not have not made them more resilient. The second thing that will become clear when reading the book is that, is that the Eurogroup has a very narrow understanding of structural reforms. It basically means budget cuts in pensions, in the public sector and welfare, as well as deregulation of labor markets. It is fiscal consolidation from the expenditure side. And the poorest tax base that, that, that we just mentioned, that the problems with tax avoidance, this is not an issue for the Eurogroup and the Troika. In fact, when Syriza came in and proposed some higher taxes for profitable sectors, the Troika told them off because they argued that this would harm the economic recovery. And furthermore, the Greek Office for Tax Investigation, Yanis um, Valfakis has outlined that repeatedly, and I think it's, he was right to do that, the Office for Tax Investigation is part of the public sector and it was cut back during the budget cuts as well. So it become, has become less effective. So structural reform did not target this. The journalist uh, Paul Bluestein wrote a book on the euro crisis, a very good book, where he called the approach of the Greek Syriza government, I quote, austerity left-wing style, a soak the rich, soak the corporations approach to budgetary discipline. So kind of a twist on austerity, but the Eurogroup would have none of it because of its narrow understanding of, of structural reforms. I think this is where kind of the, the problem lies. Well, except Varifakis did promise to deal, right from day one, promised to deal with rent-seeking and did absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, actually, I mean, all on the personality side, um, th it was very interesting. You, you, you stress... Um, the importance of the personalities, uh, both we well we mentioned Jeroen Dosselbloom, but also the uh, the longtime chairman of the Euro Working Group, Thomas Visa. Was this importance of personality something you already knew about before you started work, or is did, did, did this come as a surprise to you during your research? I'll give you a very short answer on that. Yes, I was very surprised because coming from an academic background and a lot of how I view the world rooted in political economic thinking, you know, power relations, interests, dependencies, I did not expect to find that personalities play such a large role. And this concerns the different styles of leadership between Eurogroup presidents, so between Dijsselbloem and, and Jean-Claude Juncker. This concerns the really like that you could see how what, what kind of an intimidating presence, for example, Wolfgang Schäuble had on the other ministers. This, this, is, this came as a surprise. You could trace some of those effects back to the national backgrounds of the actors, to their party political affiliation, but certainly not all of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you say, Dasselblum was um, 
I mean, when when I think back to the Eurogroup presidencies, I mean, he seemed really dominant compared to, say, Mario Centeno or uh, Pierre Gramagna. Do, do you think that was to do with the moment he lived through, <laughs> or was it largely to do with him? I think it has to, it, it had to do um, also with his uh, nationality because he was. Um, he came from from the Netherlands uh, and uh, kind of was able to represent very dominant interests within the euro crisis in a function that is again highly influential in the in the euro crisis. So this is where kind of it stops being about personality. Even though some of my interviewees have have confirmed to me, kind of the the diplom approach is um, a very strategic one as compared to Jean Claude Juncker, who was basically kind of this. Um, let's say majesty around him where he's able to pick up the phone and call kind of the leaders of the of the countries that he wants to talk about because uh, wants to talk to because he was a prime minister himself and Dyson was a lot more adept in in using the leeway that he had so um, this in the case of the Eurogroup president and also the EWG president that you mentioned uh, Thomas Wieser uh, the institutional power was immense. So I loved working on the Eurogroup working group because it's such an interesting setup where basically the deputies of the finance ministers meet and prepare most of the substance that is later discussed in the Eurogroup. And at the same time, they are the board of directors of the ESM, they are the board of directors of the EFSF, and they are just as secretive or confidential um, as the Eurogroup, maybe more because they did not receive that much media attention. But they are highly influential also in setting different milestones, the so-called prior actions for the program countries that they will have to reach before they get fresh money. And Thomas Wieser was the full-time president of that body. He was full-time um, over the over the whole period of the euro crisis. He had similar institutional powers as his Eurogroup counterpart, the Eurogroup president, in that he was able to accept or reject proposals and to sum up the common ground of the group. He also intervened in political processes at, var at various points. Um, which I depict in the book. So Visa accompanied Dysoplom to meetings with heads of state and government, or he was writing letters or making trips to actors that formerly he had a uh, little bit business with. So overall, I came to realize that in informal processes, these positions, which are basically the only more or less formalized part of the whole affair, are of particular importance and influence because they have quite the freedom to design the institutional procedures under informality, how they deem fit and how to draw outcomes close to their preferences. And as I said, both Wieser and Dysoplom uh, were highly adept in that. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I, I mentioned Gromania as a former president, which he wasn't. So that was a... <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, that, yeah, C coming back, to you, you also talk very interestingly about the evolving alliance formations. So, again you sort of imply that when you went into it, you assumed there would just be this kind of north-south uh, dichotomy. Whereas, is that some, something, again, you learned during the research about the, the development of these alliances between certain Eastern European states and the north? Absolutely. Um, and something that I had to kind of get a hold on analytically, because it was not so easy to explain. My, my main question was was not so much why the um, countries, Eastern European countries that went through austerity before were, were siding often with the northern countries, but rather why wasn't there kind of a southern power block 
where they have these massive economies, Spain and Italy and, and France as an ally, basically saying, okay, we won't do this any longer um, because they, they were um, kind of, they found that this course didn't benefit them. And I came to find that there were several factors making these positions less consistent. So first, there were kind of party political considerations. So in countries like Spain and Portugal, there were conservative governments in power that had implemented austerity. And in the upcoming elections, their main political challenges were from the political left. So they were adamant not to set any precedent giving in to anti-austerity discourses or left positions elsewhere. And second, not all of the periphery countries were program countries. This is important because Italy is the most striking case. Its national problems have a lot in common with those of the other crisis countries. And still, at several points, Italy acted first and foremost as one of the largest creditors of the ESM, uh, largest ESM contributors, which it is, and as a creditor who simply wants to get its mon his money back from the debtors. Third, and this is the fact that I came to highlight the most, was the succession of program negotiations. This was kind of the advantage of the Eurogroup, so to say. If one country negotiated its, its adjustment program, others had already gone through their own and had close to no incentives to let the countries off the hook. In fact, they had incentives to make them similar, similarly miserable to be able to show to their voters that others had to suffer just as much and they did not get a bad deal. And on the audio recordings, I transcribed several smaller Baltic countries commit to that logic. And finally, and this strongly concerns the French position, which was for me at times the most puzzling one, there were diverging interests in euro crisis management. So the French banking sector had invested heavily in the European periphery. So France had a vested interest in having Greece not default, but take the loan programs. And at the same time, France is traditionally not a friend of the fiscal restrictive setup of the Economic and Monetary Union. This even reflects in the reform proposals of Macron, who is far from what I would call a leftist, but he's, he's opposed to, to a lot of those aspects. And so they are a natural ally for the southern countries and their governments. And it took me a while to realize just how small France, France was in the processes of the Eurogroup. And I do not mean that as an insult, but I came to realize and several interviewees com confirmed this to me, that France took proud in the fact that it had prevented Grexit, so Greece leaving from the Eurozone. So it felt it had done a lot for Greece, even though the Greek people had to go through another severe round of welfare cuts and privatizations. So it's kind of symbolic for this ambivalent and rather complex stand that French ministerial officials, they helped the Greek government to draw up its third austerity program after Syriza had, lo had lost its battle in 2015. So I think one could write a whole book just about France's European politics after 2010, and really, hopefully, it's in the making somewhere. Yeah, maybe that could be your next one. Um, there's chapters six and seven, uh, you run through the Greek crisis, uh, and you use it to analyze the, the way the Eurogroup makes uh, decisions. Um, I mean, we've discussed a lot of that already. So... Do you think, can, can you imagine the Eurogroup today without the crisis in Greece in 2015? So if we just had the Greek crisis as it was, Syriza was never elected in 2015, do you think the Eurogroup would be a shadow of what it is today or would it, would it still be a, a, um, a body that would have accrued powers like you, you've described? I feel like um, the time when the Eurogroup really gained in power was when it began negotiating the adjustment programs in 2011, 2012, and then another leap of power when it 
when the ESM was set up in late 2012 and the Eurogroup managed to put itself in charge of the institution it just created, so becoming the board of the ESM. This is when it became so influential. But then I agree that the 2015 Greek crisis was the time when the Eurogroup really showed how powerful it was. So um, it's kind of for, for the self-image of the group, this, is, this has been defining because through the institution, the Northern Finance Ministries were able to make a democratically elected government agree to a political program that was diametrically opposed to everything it had has promised and everything it, it sought to achieve, actually. And this is why I put a lot of time and effort in reconstructing this. And thanks to the audio recordings of the Euroleaks and some great journalistic pieces to, written during that time, I had a strong basis um, to do so. So in Chapter 6, I basically outlined the whole Greek crisis from the point of view of the Eurogroup. So why it responded so late and kind of the... the private haircut of, of the Greek debt, the PSI, why it, had, why it failed to have meaningful effects, and then the two programs, etc. And then in Chapter 7, I retraced the conflict with Syriza in detail and the meetings that took place in the Eurogroup. And I feel for people that are not too much concerned with economic policy or governance, but rather with political thrillers, this is the chapter kind of to, to have a, a look at. And I try to, to write that um, in a style that, that it is accessible because it outlines the clash of interests between the two sides, the northern countries and, and Syriza, and it outlines the role of the Troika and the diverging calculations of the institutions in, involved. Um, most centrally, the chapter highlights the role of the Eurogroup as an institution. I, I show um, that already at a relatively early stage, countries were threatening Syriza with the Greek exit from the Eurozone, and that the ECB at a very early stage was threatening under the confidentiality of the Eurogroup to end liquidity supply to Greek banks, so to threaten it um, with closing down Greek banks. Um, but they did that in confidentiality in the Eurogroup. And I also outlined the various ways in which Greek proposals were blocked from even entering the Eurogroup process, regardless of how productive they would have been or how good the proposals were, but kind of just the institutional um, channel of that. And however, Two things I found particularly interesting uh, were these um, kind of from this political thriller side. And the first one is that it concerns Dijsselbloem's single-handed decision to exclude the Greek finance minister uh, Varoufakis from the Eurogroup meeting on 7th of June. I mean, my main analytical point here in the book is the institutional power, the informality of the Eurogroup gave Dijsselbloem to do just this without any possibility for Varoufakis to contest this. So he had to leave. But what I found personally interesting is that Dijsselbloem lied about the events in his memoirs. So there he stated that Varoufakis was leaving because he was annoyed that the Eurogroup would issue a statement without his consent. But my audio recordings leave no doubt about the fact that he was untruthful here um, because he basically uh, got rid of, of Varoufakis because he, he said the kind of Greece is no longer cooperating, so you're not part of the group anymore. So the question is, why did he lie about that? Um, and I think the book gives a pretty good answer to that. Second, the second interesting thing is after Tsipras ousted Varoufakis or Varoufakis resigned, whatever is true, which version, uh, and surrendered to the Eurogroup's demands, German minister Wolfgang Schäuble upped the stakes and he demanded even more drastic austerity reforms than Tsipras has, had just said he would accept. And the analysis clearly shows that this was the one time where Dijsselbloem and Schäuble were apart because Dijsselbloem was satisfied with Greece finally fulfilling the Eurogroup's demands, while Schäuble was adamant to implement more drastic measures 
up to replacing Greek ministry officials in Athens with bureaucrats from Brussels. So this was this was such a remarkable process and tells you a lot about the power asymmetries in the Economic and Monetary Union and how they are channeled through an inform, informal institution such as the Eurogroup. Although that, that incident is an interesting example of where Germany didn't get its way though, right? Because they... You know, as you said at the summit, Schäuble was attempting to create the equivalent of a of a, a Troyhand for for Greece, uh, and ideally, as you say, he wanted to have it based outside Greece with with Greek nationals, but from the European Commission, and he didn't get that. Um, so you you could argue that that was the Eurogroup uh, providing some balance for German asymmetry. I mean, in the end, it wasn't the Eurogroup because the Eurogroup wasn't able to agree on that, and basically said yeah exactly they kicked it up to the to the euro summit and there merkel said okay give me some of the more drastic uh, budget cuts basically and we'll leave kind of the whole um thing with replacing uh, ministry officials and as you said um putting the privatization fund basically in non-greek control somewhere else um we'll put that aside so this was kind of the the deal that was struck on the on this um summit level. I think that Merkel herself um, was seemed more satisfied with the deal um, than Schäuble, who decided to up the stakes. So what, what do you think happens next? I mean, um, now we are, we're on the other side of the pandemic. We, well, the, the, the war is still going on, but we are coming through into a, there is going to be a new European Union uh, of some sorts on the other side of this war. Where do you think the Eurogroup fits into that? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I have a fresh article out with comparative European politics, which is simply called, Does the current crisis mark the end of the EU's austerity era? Um, and it basically expands on some of the arguments that I make in the conclusion chapter of the book. So the Eurogroup's influence and activity certainly became less pronounced after Greece concluded its third program in 2018. So the northern countries increasingly shifted their agenda to conserving what they achieved. And in the pandemic, however, the Eurogroup tried to get back into its role of preparing institutional reform in the EU. So it sought to develop a blueprint on what a recovery fund could look like and how it would, pay, would, would be paid for, but it failed. And this was due to an internal stalemate between demands from France, Italy and Spain for a fund financed by, by the joint issuing of European bonds and the northern countries having none of it. And when the Eurogroup failed to deliver... Because this time it was not negotiated kind of in succession, but the whole thing was, was negotiated at once. The European Council tasked the Commission with preparing a proposal, which it did somewhat successfully. So the Commission had prepared this and it also prepared all of the other institutional instruments in the crisis as well, not the Eurogroup. So does that mean that the Eurogroup is done? I do not think so. Um, I spoke to several colleagues who suggested that the more kind of fiscally active response to the pandemic indicates a new era in European governments. And I think I have to disagree because we have to keep in mind that all the measures taken in the pandemic, the agreement on the recovery fund, the setup of the employment support instrument, SURE, the disabling of the stability and growth pact, they are all temporary. For all of those measures, Germany and the other Norway countries made sure that they would be temporary and that they would run out soon. So the Eurogroup generally showed support for these measures, but the northern countries underlined again and again that they consider these one-off responses to a passing crisis. And most centrally, there does not seem to be 
a fundamental shift in German preferences. In the paper, I argue that we should not overestimate Germany's agreement to the recovery fund. I mean, it's significant, but the liberals and the social democrats in Germany's current government, they are keen on getting back to fiscal consolidation ways. And they demand the same from the rest of the Eurozone, and they have positioned themselves against any kind of meaningful reform of the fiscal framework. So what happens when the EU fiscal rules are reactivated? Well, we will have several countries, mostly the former Euro crisis countries, with debt levels way beyond what is legally allowed with the SGP. So they will have to consolidate and fast. And this will meet a phase where the ECP, uh, the ECB is hiking their interest rates. And this has contributed to or will contribute to recession already and where yields on bonds in the periphery are on the rise again, even not in the dimensions uh, as they were in the euro crisis. And I would have, I would really love to be surprised by this, um, and hopefully I am, but I fear that we will see a return of European austerity relatively soon, and this will imply the Eurogroup getting back into its role of enforcing fiscal consolidation, and potentially the ESM providing struggling countries with loans in exchange for structural reforms. And frankly, I lack the creativity uh, to picture what an austerity program could look like in countries like Italy and Greece that already took a lot of that medicine. And I really do hope that it does not come to this, um, also for the sake of the of the European Union as a, as a political project. If you allow me one last remark, this is the last one, to build a bridge to my current research, so to say. So for a long time, the EU was very concerned with what went on in the ins on the inside. So to some degree, it still is. And this situation of fiscal austerity, of this uneven internal competition, has weakened the EU a lot. This concerns global competitiveness. It concerns its industrial-based economic growth, technical innovation. There is this discursive shift currently where the EU wants to take global geoeconomic competition with China, with the US more seriously, and where it tries to become a strategic actor. And to me, this agenda stands in strong contradiction with the economic and fiscal rules it still clings on to. And maybe a more geoeconomic orientation might actually help save Europe from itself in that regard. I wanted to come back to your um, second round of austerity paper. Is this published already? Yes, it's published already. It's out with um, comparative European politics. Okay, um, I'll, put, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes. So, um, so to, well, to close the conversation, as usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guest to recommend two one from his field and one personal choice. Uh, what, what have you chosen? Yes, uh, thank you. That was a really interesting task. So um, as I already teased in my new research project, I concern myself with geoeconomic competition, so on a global scale, and how the EU fares in this. And one edited volume I found very inspiring is uh, called The Political Economy of Geoeconomics, Europe in a Changing World. It's uh, edited by Milan Babic, Adam Dixon, and Imogen Liu, and it basically gives a political economic account of geoeconomic competition and shows how this geoeconomic turn has impacted on various fields of European politics and even the strategies of institutions and European businesses. Um, my personal choice is a book I, I love dearly. We have been talking about this uh, before the podcast for some minutes, which is Butcher's Crossing by uh, John Williams. And like many, I've been I've been socialized with kind of the stereotypical Western as a child. And when I grew up, I came to appreciate the more realistic and more raw depictions of the West, like in the movie uh, There Will Be Blood or in this novel, Butcher's Crossing. And Butcher's Crossing tells the story of a young academic from Harvard 
joining some guys in Kansas um, in the hunt for buffalo hides. And in this endeavor, he experiences kind of the mystery, but also the brutal indifference of nature. And the other novels by John Williams are great, great too, but this one uh, stands out for me probably also because of personal taste and I, because I can relate to some of the themes. Right, great. Well, thank you. Uh, today I've been talking to Yosha Arbels about the politics of the Eurogroup, published in June by Routledge. Yosha, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much, Tim, for inviting me.